You're listening to the Plugged In Podcast, presented by the Institute for Energy Research. To find out more about our work, visit our website at instituteforenergyresearch.org. Welcome to the Plugged In Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Stevens. On Monday, the price for the May futures contract for WTI dropped below zero, reaching as low as minus $40 per barrel. And joining me today to discuss this is IER's Director of Policy, Kenny Stein. Kenny, how's it going today? Going well. Uh, yeah, so yesterday uh, we published a blog on IRA's website that d- does a really good job of explaining this and clearing up some of the misconceptions about uh, what these negative prices mean. So let's just start by explaining the fact that physical oil wasn't actually trading at a negative price yesterday. It was a futures contract for May. So uh, can you just give like a basic explanation of what the oil futures market is and then explain why prices in that particular market were negative on, uh, on Monday? Sure. So the way when oil is traded, there's what is called the futures market. And the idea is that you're sort of guessing at what the price is going to be in the future. So you buy you buy a futures contract. Uh, in this case, it was for a May delivery of oil. Um, and so you say, uh, you know, I'm, I think it's going to be $20 a barrel. So you buy a futures contract at $20 a barrel and then things fluctuate. And there's a whole universe of traders and brokers that are constantly buying and selling these futures contracts, gambling on what the future price of oil is going to be. But the, these contracts, it, the, what, what went negative on Monday was a, a, a very specific contract. is for West Texas Intermediate, which is used as a benchmark oil price for the United States, even though it really refers to specifically a certain type of oil from West Texas, not surprising, from the Birmingham Basin. And the contract was for delivery, physical delivery of oil at the oil hub at Cushing, Oklahoma, uh, uh, in May. And it was for usually for these contracts are for a specific day and time, even uh, in May. But these contracts at a certain point in the month uh, all expire. And if you're let at the, at, when it expires, if you have the contract for this future oil, then you are committed to taking delivery of that physical oil at the date and time specified by the contract. Now, the expiration date for these May delivery contracts just happened to be Tuesday, yesterday. So on Monday, you had a, a bunch of these guys who are just traders who aren't set up to accept physical oil, who were trying to uh, unload their contracts at the end of the period to the physical oil traders, who are the guys that actually buy and transport the oil. The problem is, is that because of the uncertainty around the coronavirus and demand cut problems, and uh, because of demand problems, there's oil has been accumulating in storage, including at Cushing. And when these uh, traders went to sell their contracts, there weren't any buyers, or at least there weren't any buyers at positive prices. So in order for these guys to get rid of these contracts and not be on the hook for receiving physical oil, they had to pay these physical oil traders money, have to, had to pay them up to, at one point, up to $40 a barrel uh, just, to, just to take the oil off their hands so that they, they didn't get stuck with it. So that's really the, the, the negative price was for a contract. It wasn't for a physical barrel. You know, a physical barrel, uh, a refinery or something was buying on Monday, was selling for a pretty low price because of all the economic problems and things that have been going on. But it certainly wasn't negative. Yeah, and in, in your blog, you have a short discussion of just uh, the storage facilities, what it means to be fully contracted um, instead of actually being like physically full. Right. I think it's important just to explain maybe um, exactly how the uh, storage space, how those markets um, there kind of work and what that means. 
Right. So the Cushing, the reason Cushing, the Cushing Hub is a place where uh, is where a benchmark price is set is because it's got a huge capacity for stores. There's lots of tank farms that are in that area that where oil comes in and goes out. And it's in a conveniently located, you know, between oil fields in Texas and lots of refineries that are in the Midwest. And so it's just a good transit point for oil going, coming and going. And these tank farms that are there, the physical oil traders, you'll notice I'll say physical oil traders to talk about the guys who actually buy and move the actual physical oil versus the, the derivatives traders, the bank guys that are trading the futures contracts. But the physical oil companies, the big commodities companies, they have contract for long-term storage at places like Cushing for precisely this kind of eventuality so that when they have an opportunity to buy oil, they have some place to put it. So what happened in Cushing on Monday was that not that the tanks, all the tanks were literally 100% full. The tanks, the, I think the latest data said they were about 70, 70% full or so was the, um, I think, but all the space in the tanks was contracted by these physical oil traders. And so that's why what you ended up having is you had these uh, derivatives traders, the, the futures guys, who were having to pay the physical oil guys to take that oil because they were the only ones that had any capacity for physical oil. There was, there was no other physical oil capacity uh, that was for sale in Cushing uh, for May. So, so what the negative prices indicated on Monday not, was not that uh, oil was valueless or that, that nobody wanted to buy oil. It indicated that storage in Cushing was getting very close to full. And so you really had to make it someone worth someone's while to use some of their limited storage space to take your oil. Yeah, so instead of some of the uh, sort of hot takes that we saw speculating about what uh, what this meant, there was everything from it meant that oil was worthless to, uh, of course, you know, there's a whole rash of uh, different public policy ideas that it suggests to some people. But uh, what was really going on here was actually just the price system relaying information to people and right. Um, and exactly, this was this was really this was oil markets working as they're supposed to. Because it, and, and note that it wasn't futures contracts weren't negative for every benchmark oil in the world. For instance, Brent North Sea crude stayed up over twenty dollars a barrel. Uh, the futures contracts, even for WTI for June, stayed up over twenty dollars a barrel. So it was this very specific type of contract for a specific type of oil that was being delivered to a specific place that was where storage was filling up. So. A price signal was being sent out with these negative prices, basically saying to everyone, don't don't ship your oil to Cushing anymore. There isn't room. You need to you know, reverse your pipelines or slow down your production or go find storage somewhere else, which that's I mean, this sort of price signal is precisely the way these markets are supposed to work. Sure. Yeah. And when this happened, obviously, social media kind of jumped on it. And uh, there were a couple of things that jumped out to me. First, I saw a few different people um, kind of from different ideological positions uh, make comparisons to negative pricing in electricity markets when it comes to renewable energy. Is that a legitimate comparison there? Or what is the relevance of people sort of trying to pull in that context? Yes, it, they are similar in that when negative prices happen in uh, wind and solar, it means that they're generating more electricity than there's demand for. And so the prices are negative. In the same way that in for the oil price, the, there was there was uh, more oil than there was space. There was demand for than there was space for storage in Cushing. So in that way, yes. But the thing is, is that what happened? The reason wind and solar prices go negative 
isn't because of transportation uh, <laughs> bottlenecks the way the, the oil prices. The, the reason those go negative and stay negative is because of subsidies. The reason the wind power continues to generate electricity, even when they have to pay people to take it, is because they're getting a federal tax credit that means that they can sell their product for a negative price, but they still make money because the federal government is paying them money to produce electricity, even if it's not needed. So the you know the the reasons for the negative prices like in the, the descriptive way yes but their their underlying rationale is just not is not at all similar because one's caused by subsidies and the the example in Cushing is frankly it's caused by a, a sudden confluence of global factors of loss of demand from coronavirus a supply uh, a supply side uh, price war between Saudi Arabia and Russia so. It's a very unique set of circumstances, whereas negative prices for wind and solar for renewable electricity actually happen very frequently because of the subsidy aspect to it. Now, what's what you say? What was funny is you were talking about some people who, who jumped on this, but it's interesting that there were a lot of people, uh, environmental folks that were like, oh, well, oil prices are negative. So that means it's time to transition to the renewables and the Green New Deal. But when oil prices are high, they say the same thing. Oh, well, oil prices are too high. So now is the time to transition to renewables and the Green New Deal. So it's, you know, you know yeah. negative prices, positive prices, always, the answer is always Green New Deal. Yeah. And it, I mean, obviously, it was sort of difficult to follow what they were trying to argue there, I guess, in terms yeah. of the economics of it. But I guess, what do you think explains that? Is it simply just they don't actually understand the workings of the thing that they're trying to criticize or energy markets or do you think it's just blatant opportunism or or what well, because there's, it, yeah yeah there's certainly opportunism to it but the the misunderstanding of the of the oil markets that was a, that was generalized this was people both pro oil anti oil everybody was misunderstanding it and it's partly just the way that these these numbers are reported to the public that that benchmark price of the WTI is you know reported on websites like the Wall Street Journal or whatever that is the as the you know the price the quote unquote price for uh, United States oil, even though it's only like I said one specific type at one specific location. There's lots of different benchmarks, but sure. obviously the, the the general public isn't paying attention to the dozens or hundreds of different benchmark prices. They there's just one price that they look at, and that just happened to be the one that uh, went into this uh, negative price. Uh, it's it's fair to call it a crisis, and and that's the point to say too is that. This this was oil markets working as they should, but that doesn't mean that this is, you know, a perfectly normal shrug it off type event like this. This is a pretty serious indicator for the, the United States oil industry that that there's there's trouble coming, that storage is filling up, that the, the lack of demand is really becoming a problem. And they need to they need to accelerate their adjustment plans uh, to deal with this short term uh, dropping demand from the coronavirus. And in terms of policy, uh, it seems like the most reasonable thing, hopefully, would be to to just get to a place where demand for oil could rise again. And yeah, well, that's I mean, ultimately there's there's people throwing out every idea in the book that anything they can dream of as ways to try and address this. But ultimately, the o the only thing that's going to solve this problem is is for the, the global economy to start picking back up. Because once the global economy starts to rise again and people start leaving their homes, they're going to resume using all the petroleum products and all the products derived from oil once again. And that's that's what's going to bring things back. Uh, in the short term, there's really nothing government can do to magically wave their hand and solve this. I mean, this is this is going to be a hard time for the oil industry. 
they're going to have to buckle down and cut costs. And uh, unfortunately, there's going to people, some people are going to end up laid off. But the, what, what we are concerned about is that in an attempt to address these short-term factors, which this is truly short-term, a unique confluence of short-term factors, long-term demand for oil is expected to continue to rise. So the problem is, is if the government responds to this short-term problem by restricting production or one example is paying people not to produce oil, the various central planning ideas, that those have long-term ramifications, that they, they prop up weaker companies, uh, they suppress uh, you know, incentives for innovation, uh, those sorts of things that, that have long, will do long-term harm when later this year the economy starts to pick up, oil demand starts to pick up. So what we need is a, we need is a dynamic, frankly, free market oil industry that can actively respond when, de- when demand starts to come back, not a oil industry where it's the government is telling people what to produce and where to transport it in an effort to try and prop up prices. I would just say from a policy perspective, we've talked about, you know, what we think is bad central planning, but there are things that government can do to, to help in this process. And they tend to be, uh, you know, sort of deregulatory, trying to let the markets work better. So it's, you know, relaxing some of the some of the hoops you have to jump through to say, open up more storage, uh, but you could waive the tariffs on steel, which make uh, drill pipe much more expensive for no apparent reason. Something like the giving a Jones Act waiver that allows uh, oil to be moved around domestically in the United States. There's areas of the country where there's still plenty of storage. Uh, if we could move oil from the Gulf Coast, where storage is full, to other parts of the country more cheaply, that would relieve some of our storage problems or even be able to sell it to Puerto Rico or Hawaii uh, for a reasonable price. So there's definitely some things that government can take as, an, as actions. But the key, the key ben- thing that shows these beneficial actions are things that they're, they're not just short term. They, they have long term benefits. They're not about you know, a panicked response. It's about allowing markets to operate more freely so that these sorts of bottlenecks uh, that happened on Monday don't happen in the future. You can read Kenny's blog along with more content from all of IER staff at our website, instituteforenergyresearch.org. Kenny, thanks for speaking with me today. Thank you.